Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 290, Gnome Fun and Carrot Bacon, Sunday, December 12th, 2021. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. Each time I record an episode, I post show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. You can listen to the podcast on my website, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. And in doing a little Yarns at Yinhu search this morning, I discovered a whole bunch of really, really nice reviews on a website called Pod Paradise. And I recognized some listeners with whom I regularly interact and that they had posted their very kind reviews on that site. So thank you so much. And it seems like Pod Paradise might be a good way to find some knitting podcasts if you're interested in new content. Yarns at Yin Hu is on the air because listeners like you make purchases of my knitting patterns. They're available on Ravelry. The most recent design is called Arrows and Doorways. It's a design for a very squishy, cozy colorwork cowl that uses stranded donut grafting so that you can graft the tubular cowl closed without being able to detect where you began and ended your knitting. Super clever with tutorials, and I highly recommend it. That is available currently at tiered pricing. I also want to mention that I have worked up a worsted weight child's version of my one dark blue night hat. This is the one with the moon phases on it. It's knit in fingering weight yarn. That's what's contained in the directions. But recently I wanted to knit a version for Little Briar. And so you can find the altered directions for that on my Ravelry page for that little hat. If Ravelry is not a safe space for you and you're interested in a pattern purchase, we can arrange uh, purchasing through PayPal and I can email you everything you need so that you don't need to go on Ravelry. And you can contact me through the website or via Instagram if you're interested in that option. At the top of this episode, I also want to take the time to mention an opportunity called the CAN Retreat. That's C-A-N which stands for Creative Advocacy Networking. This is the creation of Anne Choi and Mars Smith. You know Anne from Middlebrook Fiberworks, and maybe you've visited her booth at Maryland Sheep and Wool. And you know Mars as Hay Brownberry, who has a dazzling social media presence. They have teamed up to offer an opportunity. It is a virtual one this year uh, for a retreat, January 14th to 16th. The retreat this year is called Our Stories, Our Voices, 
like I said, January 2022. And I'm going to read you the description for this event because you may be interested. Or if this opportunity doesn't apply to you, I hope that you will use your platform or whatever ability you have to spread the word about this opportunity. The CAN Retreat is a professional development event focused on promoting the success of businesses owned by racial and ethnic minority artists in our community. The retreat is organized and led by BIPOC fiber workers and is designed specifically for members of underrepresented racial and ethnic groups who work or want to work in the fiber industry. Those who are focused on woolwork, handcrafts, and the teaching of these disciplines. The CAN Retreat is a connection point, an empowerment center, a starting point, a safe space, an access point. And it's held as an online retreat with an offering, um, a mix of presentations and discussions and Q&A, a lot of support. There are, there's a list um, online. I will link to this in my show notes. There's a list of presentations, industry-specific sessions, a virtual meetup to kick off the event with all kinds of nitterati, Um, and really a great opportunity. It's capped at 50 attendees. And right now, Mars and Anne are interested in spreading the word about this opportunity to people who may benefit. I've also shared information about the CAN retreat on my social media platform, my Instagram platform, and I will continue to do so. Finally, I have offered to make a financial contribution to a participant or participants in this retreat by offering up a mini grant. And in coming weeks, I'm going to ask if any fellow podcasters would like to join me in this effort. And if you're a listener and you would like information on how you can make a financial contribution to the folks who attend this retreat and then are looking to implement some of the ideas afterwards, please contact me and I can hook you up with that opportunity. Today's podcast features the following segments, the back porch, the front porch, ever-expanding skill set, and off the shelf. The back porch. I'm very pleased to report that my holiday gift knitting has concluded. It did not conclude on November 30th as I wished. However, it was about December 4th that I finally finished everything up. So my holiday knitting includes five hats, that's three Lenny hats, one Musselboro hat, one one dark blue night hat in worsted weight for a child, one pair of fingerless mitts with colorwork cuffs, and one pair of pajama bottoms. And the pajama bottoms are a sewn garment. 
So that was quite a hefty undertaking and I completed this, I think the majority of this knitting I completed in November. I may have started some things in October, but November was really the gift knitting month and I was motivated by some projects that I wanted to cast on as soon as all of this holiday crafting was over and I feel really good about it. The Lenny hats in particular are gorgeous. I put pom-poms on the top of two of them and I'm really pleased with how they look. I think they make a great gift. The Muscleboro hat is tons of fun. I use Knit Spin Farm scraps and remnants of self-striping sock colorways to knit this hat. The One Dark Blue Night hat, I'm so pleased that I was able to work out a stitch count for worsted weight yarn and a child size for this hat. I chose three colors of wool ease yarn because I wanted this to be something that could be thrown in the washing machine and it came out so cute. I really love the look of this hat. I hope it fits Little Briar. And I put a big black uh, faux fur pom-pom on the top that snaps off so that the hat can be washed. The Colorwork Cuff Mitts are for my mom. They are by request. She asked for mitts that were either black or gray to go with her coat. And she didn't say anything about having a Colorwork Cuff with adorable chickens at the bottom, but I took the liberty of using the solstice hat pattern, which is awesome and has options for three different farm animal motifs. And I took the chicken motif and reduced it. In addition to chickens, there's also like a flower and a adorable mushroom, but I needed to work with a 55 stitch count for the circumference of this mitt. And so I took the 27 stitch motif that has the chickens and I doubled it and I eliminated, unfortunately, the mushroom. But hopefully it won't be the last time I work with this beautiful little pattern and I can go back and add those mushrooms sometime in the future. So I completed the cuff in red and white, very traditional red and white from Jameson and Smith. And then I transitioned to black worsted weight yarn. It's a very thin worsted, but I wanted the mitts to be really nice and warm. And it's a true black. And for that, I used the Pioneer Mitts pattern which is 55 stitches and it's a three by two rib. Really nice and stretchy. My mom suffers from lymphedema and has a lot of issues with swelling. So I wanted to knit mitts that would fit her no matter what and would be nice and comfortable. And so with a 54 stitch cuff and a 55 stitch uh, mitt, I only needed to just sneak one little stitch in there in order to be able to get up my stitch count for the mitts. These look really sharp. The black, white, and red are very polished. 
I made the cuff quite long so that the color work kind of tucks inside the sleeve of her coat and really she will be the only one who knows about it. My final project was a sewn pair of pajama bottoms in a snuggly lightweight flannel for Samuel. I used Simplicity Pattern 8519. When I shopped for this pattern, I was looking for a pajama bottom that had pockets anchored into the waistband as opposed to the side seam. Samuel is wearing through and has um, quite a bit of damage that I need to repair on pajama bottoms that have those inseam pockets. It was not clear looking at the information on the simplicity pattern that not only did these pajama bottoms have pockets anchored to the waistband, but they also had a whole front placket and button fly situation. So they're really proper trousers just sewn in a more comfortable casual fabric. I've only sewn a fly one time before, and that was under the very capable supervision of Emily of Fibertown when she coached Sarah and I through jeans making, and it's been a couple of years. I've never assembled a fly on my own. I needed to use my buttonholer. What turned into a 10-hour project I really had envisioned would only take about three hours after I had cut everything out. So these were a significant investment of time. I'm pretty pleased with the way they look. I don't know about the fit. I'm a little worried that the waistband uh, might be a bit snug. We'll see. I did buy special elastic that is made for the waistband of underwear and pajamas. It has a much um, softer stretch to it and is less likely to, um, I don't know, twist or get bound up in the waistband. So I'm hopeful that these are a great fit and will be well received. I did learn a lot in sewing them, and I did resort at the end to hand stitching the top buttonhole because my buttonholer just kept mangling the fabric. It works quite well on a flat surface where the buttonhole attachment can kind of glide on the surface of the fabric. But as soon as there's any kind of uneven thickness or, you know, thick areas of fabric, the buttonholer attachment, it doesn't move properly. And so what you end up with is at about a billion stitches in one spot that you need to snip out. So after snipping out two failed buttonhole attempts, I just resorted to hand sewing it because if I did it one more time and mangled it, I was going to start destroying the fabric in the placket. And with, you know, if it seems like it's coming undone, I can always repair that hand-sewn buttonhole. 
What a delightful feeling to have gift knitting concluded and to be able to devote the remainder of December to some projects I've been thinking and dreaming about for a long time. And I've already finished two of them. <laughs> the first is Gnome de Plume by Sarah Shira. I've been thinking that I wanted to knit a gnome. I've seen Sarah Shira's patterns all over the place and so many delightful examples of them. And I chose Gnome to Plume because I was really attracted to the leaf motif on the charming little hat of this gnome. And I didn't realize, I didn't take the time to note the finished dimensions of this project, which is over 10 inches. So I purchased the pattern, I assembled my yarns, and then I saw cast on 52 stitches. 52 stitches is what some folks cast on for a sock, and that seemed like a lot. It also seemed like I wasn't going to be able to use some of the small bits of yarn that I had because it wouldn't be enough. But the pattern looked pretty complicated, and I I didn't want to start making alterations before I even understood everything about this design. So I cast on and I started knitting. And Gnome de Plume is super clever. It's very, very charming. There are a lot of little tips and tricks and Sarah Shira has tutorials for the more challenging parts. And I was knitting, knitting, knitting along making these beautiful leaf motifs on the hat. And about two-thirds of the way through, I had a reckoning where I realized I was not knitting the thing that I wanted to have. I wanted to have something that was more like a gnome figurine, not a gnome doll. And it was going to take a long time to knit this quite large thing. So I ripped it out. And I decided at that point I understood the pattern enough to begin again with the stitch count that would be more in keeping with the results I wanted. So I cast on 26 stitches instead of the 52. And I just kept working the pattern and making decisions and making changes so that I got an object that was about half the size. And because I was knitting the thing that I really wanted, my knitting went much faster. So I had put in like three or four days working on this hat and I wasn't even two-thirds of the way done. And once I ripped back and cast on again, I had the whole thing completed in a matter of a few days. And it looks really, really cute. So I decided on a kind of traditional red cap and a blue bottom and a silvery gray color for the beard and the braids. And my favorite 
element of this design is the little leaf at the top of the cap. It is so charming. So this gnome, Natalie, is living on a shelf in our bathroom. And this is becoming, it's slowly becoming a whole gnome scene. I will include a photo in the show notes. But I, we have a little ceramic gnome figurine, so I put that there. I have some felted mushrooms and a deer from Amos GW's daughter, Svea. She felted them and I was given them as a gift. It's been a few years now, but they are a treasured aspect of my holiday decorating. And then I purchased No Fun Like Gnome Fun, which is the pattern for the teeny tiniest gnomes. It's actually three different patterns. This is a really good purchase because you get a lot of options. And I've already completed one of the little ball-shaped gnomes to sit next to Natalie. And I think there might be a few more of these in my future, maybe changing up the colors a little bit. I've also cast on some self-striping socks in Knit Spin Farms Deep Wood Solstice Celebration colorway. And that's some really beautiful Christmassy reds and greens. There's brown and blue. And I'm having a lot of fun knitting these socks. I cast on a tubular cast on in a contrasting color and just did a one by one rib. And then I shifted to a three by one rib for the leg of the sock. And I'm using a technique that I saw first from Earth Tones Girl, who does just fabulous things and is very detailed with her explanation of how she knits her socks. And one of the things I learned when she was explaining how to keep crisp lines when you're using a self-striping colorway and you want some kind of rib or patterning is as the yarn changes color, you knit that round, the first round of a new color, in entirely knit stitches. So even if you're making a ribbed sock, you stop ribbing for one round. And then once you have a complete round of that color, you continue in that color going back to your two by two or three by one or whatever it is. So it gives just a little bit different amount of stretch but it gives really nice crisp lines in the color. And I like this effect. So I'm glad I'm working on something, you know, just a smidge different from what I've done with socks in the past. These are short kind of ankle socks and I'm using a traditional heel flap, heel turn and gusset. And on the first sock, I just... Um, completed the heel flap and heel turn and now I'm working back around on the um, decreases along the sides. These will likely be a Christmas gift for my mom but not this Christmas. I will just hang on to them 
and set them aside for her for next Christmas. Finally, yesterday I cast on the Baltian sweater by Caitlin Hunter. This sweater has a boat neck and a very stylized feather motif. And the yoke is not the traditional round color work yoke. Rather, there's a center stitch that runs down the top of each arm, and there are increases made along that center stitch. I purchased the yarn for this pattern at Rhinebeck and was very interested in trying out some yarn designed by Gail Piranello and spun by Battenkill Fiber Mill. Gail had intended this yarn as a sock yarn, and then she sort of went in a different direction with what she was making, and she was selling this off, I think, more than 400 yards for $10 at Rhinebeck. And some of it was in this unbelievably gorgeous, dusty purple color. So I bought three skeins, thinking about it as the main color for this sweater. The yarn has a long wool content to it and is knitting up very nicely. For the contrast color, I chose some Foster Sheep Farm dyed yarn in a salmon color. I believe it's dyed with matter and it has this brilliant kind of peachy orange tint to it. So these are not two colors that I would normally put together, but I like the way they're working together. And the pattern suggests that for the color work, you hold the contrasting colorway double with mohair. I do have some silk mohair yarn. I used it for one of the Lenny hats. It's not dyed to match the salmon. This is like a very generic kind of taupe color. But nevertheless, I'm holding those two yarns together and I like the effect so far. It took me quite a while to piece together how I was going to cast on this sweater and do the neckline. The reason for that is that I looked quite carefully at finished object photos for this Baltian sweater. And it starts with an I-cord cast on. And it seemed to me from looking at the photos that people had trouble executing that cast on. And there was some weird rolling and gaping. There were some too wide neckline openings so I decided that I would not use an I-cord cast-on for this neckline, that I would use a tubular cast-on with a very small needle and do just a little bit of ribbing for the neckline. So I cast on with a US one and a half and did just a couple of rounds of one by one rib. And then I moved up to a two and a half, I think. And just kept going with a few more rounds of rib. And then I switched to the US four 
to start the body of the sweater. It did seem like it was flipping and rolling, but after I started the motif, I did the short row shaping in the back and I started the motif and I really kind of got going on the sweater. I took it upstairs and just steamed everything to see if it would lie flat and see how it relaxed. And I think it will be fine. When I get a little bit further with the yoke, uh, the color work yoke, I will um, put it on some different needles and actually try it on, try sitting it on my shoulders and see how it does. As you can probably guess from listening to me prattle on about this, I did not swatch for this sweater. And in general, I do not do a gauge swatch before starting really anything. I know this may be a very unpopular approach. Do a gauge swatch. You must do a gauge swatch. I think a gauge swatch does give some important information about the fabric that you're going to get in a garment. But a gauge swatch does nothing to indicate what size neckline you should start with or what type of cast on is going to work best. Those things are really determined by completing that portion of the design and making sure it's what you want. So I would rather, in almost every scenario, I would rather look carefully at the directions, make some choices about the needle size and the stitch count I'm going to start with, let's say, for the neckline of a sweater, where I'm going to start. Start the knitting and then try it on when I get into a little bit and see if it's going in the direction that I want it to go. If it isn't, yes, it's very sad to rip all of that out, but I'm not just ripping it out. I'm ripping it back with the understanding of what specific changes I'm going to make to get the garment that I want. The fabric I'm going to get with fingering weight yarn and US4 needles is not a mystery to me. I don't need to swatch to uncover anything important about that. What I'm concerned with is how is this going to sit on my neck and shoulders because everything else goes from there. And this is a very unusual shaped sweater. So I want to make sure that it's anchored on my shoulders properly. And to do that, I just need to do a little more knitting and then put this on either a couple of needles or, you know, some sort of yarn or stitch holders where I can sit the whole thing over my shoulders and assess what's going on. Now that I've scandalized you with my talk of no swatching, let's get on to something more wholesome like carrot bacon. 
This past weekend, I prepped a reception for a fundraising event that Samuel has done for 10 years now called Jingle Jingle. It's a holiday extravaganza at our local Deerhead Inn Jazz Club, which they give over to some more experimental things that aren't strictly jazz, but only on Sundays. And Samuel invites musician friends and acquaintances of his to come and put on this event. So there were five different performances and lots of fundraising for a local charity called Maddie's Angels, which sends money to all different sorts of good works in the area. I think he raised over $3,500 with this event, which is awesome. And for the first time, and certainly not the last, this event was carbon neutral. So Samuel followed some guidelines for carbon neutral events and made careful choices and then um, bought, did some like buyback credits to make the event completely carbon neutral. Isn't that awesome? My role in this weekend was to host the reception for all the musicians and their significant others, which we do across the street from the Deerhead here at the Castle Inn. And uh, that's where I'm sitting right now talking to you. And I knew that I had a number of vegetarian and vegan musicians and partners. So I wanted to make sure that everything that I was offering either was vegan or had a vegan alternative. And one of the favorite little appetizers that I always do is bacon-wrapped dates. So I was looking for an alternative, something that was similar, something with dates. I wasn't really even going for this notion of mimicking a bacon-wrapped date, but I found a recipe for carrot bacon. And it turned out to be quite impressive, and I think that It was good enough that I would try it again and try altering the recipe just a little bit. So carrot bacon is meant to mimic the look, maybe not the texture, and a little bit of the taste of bacon. You start with very large fat carrots and a Y peeler and make long thin strips Not so thin that they'll disintegrate in the oven, but thin enough so that you could imagine wrapping them around a date. And you put them in a marinade of um, ingredients that encourage a sweet, salty, smoky, umami kind of flavor, just like you would expect with bacon. So I use maple syrup, soy sauce, brown sugar, smoked paprika, salt and pepper, and also some cider syrup, which is just a reduction of apple cider. I did not use liquid smoke 
because I don't have and I don't know enough about liquid smoke to know if that's something that I would want to put into my food. I also neglected to use miso paste. It wasn't in the recipe, but I feel like that would be a really good addition to this recipe because it would give like a darker color, an umami, savory saltiness. So if I did it again, I would add a dark miso paste to this recipe. So you mix all those ingredients together into a kind of marinade and you let the carrots, the carrot strips sit in that marinade for a few hours and then you lay them out on a parchment lined baking sheet and bake them for about 15 minutes. So I did eight minutes, turned them over about another eight minutes. They're cooked, but they're still pliable. They're not getting crispy or anything like that. And then I simply wrapped them, wrapped these carrot strips around dates. I didn't stuff the dates with anything this time because I didn't have what I thought would be like an appropriate vegan cheese, but I might try that again in the future. I just wrapped the carrots around the dates and then put them back in the oven and let them the carrot finish cooking and the date kind of softens and the sugars come out and then I put them on skewers to serve. These were a resounding success. People could not believe how much they looked like bacon wrapped dates when they were done. And there was even some confusion, you know, on the platters of people choosing a carrot wrap date, not even realizing that they didn't have bacon, which I thought was extraordinary because I thought the smokiness of the bacon was really missing. But I guess the visual suggestion that it was bacon maybe made up for that. I'm not sure. Anyway, I will link the recipe that I use. Like I said, it did have liquid smoke and I didn't use that. Uh, But I think this is a super clever idea and uh, I would definitely try it again in the future. Today is day 17 of my wool and 100 day dress challenge. I'm participating with Mary Beth, who is out of this world 808 on Instagram. We started this project together on Black Friday and we're continuing through March 6th. And so far I am having tons of fun with this challenge. My only regret is that I haven't tried it sooner. In mid-November, I made a list of all of the things that I thought I could wear with this black knee-length tank dress. And it turns out that as I get into it, there are even more possibilities than I originally thought. And I'm having a lot of fun wearing things that I really haven't taken out of my closet for a while. So it working through the lens of this very plain black tank dress, 
I'm seeing the clothing I have through a different lens, which has been a lot of fun. I've also been having great fun with the photos because a colleague art teacher of mine, Marlene, is helping me with the photos at, when I go to work. And I'm sort of on my own with the photos on the weekend, but I, it's going well. And uh, I just feel creative. I feel excited to get dressed in the morning because I'm kind of like figuring things out and and trying new ways of wearing this dress. I'm so impressed with how it is resisting odor. I had thought I would wash this dress once a week. And this week, Wednesday came and went. I did not wash the dress and um, just put it in a load of laundry on Saturday night. So uh, that's about a week and a half. And uh, really, it just, it washes up fabulous. I'm so impressed. I love the drape of it. I think the top is keeping its um, elasticity and its shape pretty well. And I'm really pleased that I chose a dress without sleeves. I think it gives me more options. I can always put a thin shirt under or over the dress, but I don't have to contend with sleeves every day. And I think that is also one of the reasons that it's, the dress isn't getting that smelly because there's nothing you know, kind of up under my arm. After a double mastectomy and reconstructive surgery, under my arms continues to be a very sensitive area that is often uh, prone to swelling. And so I can't have anything up in my business under my arm. And I'm usually much more comfortable starting my layering with something that doesn't have sleeves. So this was a great choice. I also like the longer length because a couple of times I've been wearing this dress belted and I like that look. And because it's just a little bit longer, uh, it seems to sit pretty well with the belt and then kind of blousing it up over the top of the belt a little bit. Thank you to everyone who's been so supportive and so engaged on my Instagram account. It really helps keep me motivated hearing from all of you, responding to some of your questions. And I think there's at least a little bit of interest or curiosity in trying out a project like this. And so I'm setting aside January 2 through 8 if any listeners or Instagram followers want to join me just for a week, you pick the garment. It could be a dress. It could be a shirt, pants, whatever. You choose the garment and how to style it and just give it a try for a week and see how it goes. I was thinking January 2 through 8 would be great because it's kind of like a great way to start the new year with something thoughtful and intentional. And that would give you New Year's Day to make some plans and some decisions and kind of get everything set up and then go for a week trying this out. 
So if you'd like to join me and Mary Beth, the invitation is open. I'm trying to invite some of my work colleagues to do this as well. Uh, but if you've been curious, this could be a great opportunity to do it in company with others. I think that's what's really helped, especially the kickoff of this, be successful for me is knowing that I'm doing the project with Mary Beth and just kind of feeling that camaraderie and like I'm not out there alone trying to make these choices and decide what to do. The posts have been a little more work than I anticipated, but I wanted really good photo documentation of what I was doing and not just that I was wearing the dress, but what am I pairing it with? How am I making it work into outfits, both at work, because I work in a school building, and although we're not particularly formal there, you do have to look professional every day. And then at home, where I do a lot of work that I would traditionally have on kind of old, sloppy, crappy clothing, but now I'm, you know, wearing a dress to do yard work or um, prep a fundraising event or dash off to get a Christmas tree and all kinds of things like that. I would not normally wear a tank dress for these types of activities, and yet I'm able to work out how to do that. This is the 100-day dress challenge from Wool and, and since I will be doing this till March 6th, you will hear some more about it in upcoming episodes. For Off the Shelf, I'm going to share a poem that made its way to me in the December 13th issue of The New Yorker. The poem is by inaugural poet Amanda Gorman, and it's called Lucent. I was attracted to this poem because I've been thinking about what I enjoy most about the holiday season and this year, more than ever, I'm attracted to the lights, the different qualities of light, the way the year, the season is darkening here in the Northern Hemisphere, and people react to that by adding light to their environment. Candles, Christmas tree lights, lights on houses, and buildings and decorations and things that sparkle. And uh, I've just been thinking recently how pleasing that is, how much my eye and uh, my, my emotions are, are sort of drawn to that. And so when I saw this poem, I knew it was one that I was going to share with you here on the podcast. Lucent by Amanda Gorman. What would we seem stripped down like a wintered tree? Glossy scabs, tight raised skin, these can look silver in certain moonlights. 
In other words, our scars are the brightest parts of us. The crescent moon, the night's lucent lesion, we are felled oaks beneath it, branches full of empty. Look closer. What we share is more than what we've shed. And what we share is the bark, the bones. Paleontologists from one fossilized femur can dream up a species, make believe a body where there was none. Our remnants are revelation, our requiem as raptus. When we bend into dirt, we're truth preserved without our skin. Lumen means both the cavity of an organ, literally an opening, and a unit of luminous flux, literally a measurement of how lit the source is. Illuminate us. That is, we too are this bodied unit of flare, the gap for lux to breach. Sorry, must have been the light playing tricks on us, we say, knuckling our eyelids. But perhaps it is we who make falsities of luminescence, our shadows playing tricks on stars. Every time their gazes tug down, they think us monsters, then men, predators, then persons again, beasts, than beings, horrors, and then humans. Of all the stars, the most beautiful is nothing more than a monster, just as starved and stranded as we are. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a great week with time for the crafting you enjoy. And in the next episode, 291, I will be bringing you a conversation with Kelly Vaughn, also known as Knit Swag on social media. And she is working on an update of Virginia Woods Bellamy's number knitting. We've been messaging with one another since the days when I was recording the Elizabeth Zimmerman series with Dr. Lily. And I'm very pleased that in just a few hours, I'm going to be recording our conversation and then editing it to put out in the next episode. Mm